Tonight on the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about a rather unsettling little bit of science. The idea of a body farm. What is a body farm? Yeah, stick around. You're going to want to hear this one. Also, we know that there are different groups around the world that are facing persecution and worse. But I don't know if you're going to expect the answer that came from a British investigation by the British government about what religious group is facing near genocidal, that's their word, genocidal levels of attacks around the world. We'll talk about what group that is. And we talk about the CFL and the CFL Players Association finally coming to an agreement on a contract just before training camp opened, which actually includes a few really good things for the players, as well as some things that I'm not really sure if they're going to help. All that coming up. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Most people listening right now have given some thought to what they would like to happen to their body when they die. I mean, whether it is being buried in a cemetery, some of you probably have a plot already picked out and paid for. Others want to be cremated and maybe put up on the mantle or sprinkled in some favorite place around the planet, whatever. Some of you, I don't know, some of you maybe want to be buried at sea for all I know. But most of you probably have at least contemplated the thought, well, let me throw it another option that maybe you haven't considered yet. How about being wrapped in a blanket and put in the trunk of a car for a couple of weeks or months or, or left out in a field under the blazing sun to decompose? Now, I'm not, this is not about being ghoulish, even though it may sound like it. This is actually about science because Canada is about to get its first human taphonomy facility. Some people call it a body farm, although I understand the people behind it don't exactly love that name. But this is where corpses are studied as they decay to help police and forensic sciences solve crimes. And to be able to do this, they need bodies. And perhaps surprisingly, people are already signing up to be subjects for this. We bring in Dr. Sherry Forbes. She's the Canada Research Chair in Forensic Thanatology at the University of uh, du Quebec at Trois-Rivières. She is previously the director and founder of the Australian facility for taphonomic experimental research, the only facility in the field of human decomposition in Australia and in the Southern Hemisphere. Sherry, Dr. Sherry, thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much. I am guessing when most people have contemplated the idea or played with the idea of donating their body to science, they have certain things that they have thought might happen. This is probably not high on the list for most people. Yes, that's right. Uh, certainly when people think about donating to medical science, it's, it is for medical research. Uh, the concept of donating one's body is usually to train doctors, to train surgeons, uh, to help the medical and the health sciences. Uh, but we are starting to change that, uh, that idea and certainly we are having people already willing to donate to assist the police and forensic science research. So when I assume that you talk to some of these people before they pass away. They obviously give their uh, approval. or give. Their, so who are the people who are signing up to do this? Who are the people interested in being volunteers? Yes, definitely we have to have people providing informed consent before mm-hmm. they uh, pass away. That's very important to us. It's also important to us that they talk to their families as well and that the family is aware of their wish. Um, the people I speak to, and, and I've spoken to hundreds in Australia and, and some recently here, uh, usually donate for several reasons. Uh, one is 
simply altruism, uh, the, the wish to give back after death and, and to contribute to science. Uh, I often hear donors tell me, you know, I no longer need my body after death and somebody else should benefit from that. But we also see people who see this as more of a green burial. So they're thinking oh. much more about the environment. And uh, in those scenarios, they will preferentially do donate to us instead of medical science because they just like the idea of returning very naturally to the earth. Then the reason I asked partially is for that, but partially also when you've talked to people, for example, over the years who are doctors who are in fields that many people might say, oh, I'm not sure that's exactly a, a field of medicine I would love to do. Many of them have gone into that field because someone in their family had an illness in that area or something. They've been prom prompted to it by something that happened in their life. And I'm wondering if these are people who have had someone in their family die or something happened that they think I would like to help down the road to make sure that that doesn't happen to someone else. In some cases, that's certainly the way that they will come to us. Uh, unfortunately, they have been a victim of crime or they have experienced a loved one uh, who has, has died as a result of a crime. But I would have to say, actually, that's the minority. Um, I more hear donors say they just love CSI. They love bones, <laughs> you know, NCIS. They love what we do and that they truly understand the impact of our research. And even if they haven't been exposed to it, they can recognize that their body can help solve a crime and, and help another family. So, so TV has helped you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, most forensic scientists really dislike those TV shows, um, but I have to say they've raised awareness about what we do, and most of our donors have at least seen one of those TV shows and, and will tell us that it had an impact on, on their decision. When you tell people who, who you may be just meeting, you're at a dinner party somewhere and they say, oh, Dr. Sherry, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a thanatologist. And they say, oh, what's that? And you tell them, what's the response? Uh, most people find it interesting. Uh, you'd be surprised how often I talk about death over a dinner or a, a lunch conversation. <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of curiosity. Uh, for us, it's the unknown. We don't really know what happens after death and people are interested, even though it's, it's quite morbid at times. And uh, usually, they again, they can relate because they understand a little bit from TV or from reading novels. Um, so I, I'm always pleasantly surprised at the interest people show in my career. But having said that, most people admit they couldn't do it themselves. Well, no, I was going to say with a scrunched up face, I'm sure they're asking a million questions. That's right, yes. Well, d Dr. Forbes, describe exactly or define exactly what thanatology is. What does it mean? A thanatology uh, in its simplest form is the study of death. From a forensic point of view, we focus predominantly on what happens to the body after death and the, uh, the bio biological and the chemical degradation of predominantly soft tissue um, once, once a person is deceased. So when this facility opens, and it's going to get started being built, I understand, this summer, how exactly does this work? You, you have this now, I don't know how big this area is, what will you do with it? So we, we have chosen land that is uh, fairly heavily forested, a, a woodland environment, and we typically choose this kind of location because uh, unfortunately it is the types of environments where police will often be searching for victim remains. And we really, there's not a lot to construct, but we place a high security fence around that area. Uh, we have CCTV cameras 
And the the number one priority for us is actually to maintain the privacy of our donors. So people tell me it looks like a prison. Uh, it's certainly not trying to keep people in. We just want to ensure that only those who are authorised to be there can access the site. And so you have a donor who has now passed away and they've donated their body. You what, just take it out into different areas or different scenarios and leave it out to see what happens? That's right. We will recreate scenarios that the police have requested. Again, most of our work is to assist to assist their death investigations. So that could be to mimic a missing person, somebody who perhaps has been hiking, has, has perished and is simply lying on the surface. And they will decompose quite differently to a, a person who has been buried in a shallow grave, as would be the case for perhaps a victim of homicide. And we recreate these scenarios and our researchers visit every single day uh, to monitor what's happening. We also have a lot of cameras and sensors that continue to uh, monitor the progress as well. And we just try to get as much data as we can from every single donation. How does this help solve a crime, though? I mean, I, I certainly understand how you could learn about decomposition, but how does this help either solve a crime or get convictions when the police do have someone? Most of what we do is about improving the methods we currently have to search for victims. So our big challenge is actually finding remains to to have a body and actually to prosecute an offender. Um, But once we find remains, our other challenge is estimating time since death. So how long that person's been deceased to pair them with uh, a missing persons record and ultimately to identify the victim. So we have methods for doing all of those, but they're not as good as they could be. And that's what we try to improve, uh, whether that's training with cadaver dogs, whether that's looking at new ways to estimate time since death, or whether it's improving the way we identify victims and ultimately to then link an offender to that crime. At the risk of being indelicate, when you're out doing your research, does it not stink? (laughs) It does. Um, And actually, that's my expertise. So my research focuses on decomposition odour and particularly trying to understand how cadaver dogs locate that odour and how we can enhance their ability to do that. So you do certainly need a strong stomach for this kind of work. (laughs) And at the risk of being a little unsettling again, how extreme might you be willing to go for your research? What scenarios could you imagine doing to try to replicate a crime scene? Because some of the crime scenes that we hear about are, are horrifying. Absolutely. And, and it is something we do have to balance. Uh, there are certainly scenarios that the police would like recreated, but we, out of respect for our donors, simply cannot do that. Uh, so we always have to balance the science with, with the reality and ensure that what we're doing is scientific, that it's ethical uh, and that it is maintaining the wishes of the deceased. I have so many more questions. We only have another minute or so left here, but uh, I I think I've seen a 60 minutes. I think it was 60 minutes that I saw do an episode on this one time, some news magazine show. And I believe that one, which at wherever that facility was, was somewhere in a very warm climate, maybe the desert, uh, if I recall, extreme heat, in other words, which would obviously be different from what we would have in Canada. So is part of the reason that we are putting it here because of the very different climate from other places? Yes, definitely. That was probably in Texas. They have two facilities. Yes, yes. And one of them is like a desert. It's extremely hot. 
and the the decomposition is much more rapid in that kind of environment. In fact, uh, bodies will mummify very, very quickly. Uh, and as you say, we're the opposite. In the middle of winter, our bodies don't decompose at all. They're, they're essentially frozen. And so for us to be able to estimate how long a person has been dead uh, means we have to recreate those scenarios in our environment. We can't take data from places like Texas because it just doesn't mimic what we see here. What happens uh, when you're done with this? Does the body go back to the family for a proper burial or do they just remain there? Do you bury them? What happens? No, they do. Uh, they are returned to the family. So we typically only have our donors for three years and which time they will be returned, uh, their ashes will be returned to the family or the family can request that we scatter the ashes on their behalf. So we do have a a small or a short study period, um, but there's so much that we gain even in that time frame. It is is fascinating, slightly disconcerting, I'm not going to lie, but it is fascinating (laughs) stuff. I really, Dr. Sherry Forbes, uh, sincerely appreciate you taking time to talk about it today. Thanks for this. Thanks so much. It's uh, somewhat creepy, but really, really intriguing at the same time. But after her description of the odor, I will not be visiting there. You do have to have a certain stomach to be able to do this. As she said, I don't have that stomach. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You have heard, surely, if you've been paying any attention anywhere, that Jews around the world are facing persecution. Anti-Semitism is a problem. It has been a problem forever. It continues to be a problem. Uh, You have, I'm sure, heard about Muslims, in some cases, being attacked and facing some persecution. We heard about in Christchurch, New Zealand, just how many, a couple months ago, three months ago, the the shooting in the mosque there. Uh, There are places where Muslims are being attacked and are, are facing difficult times. It's important to know about that as well. Yet, according to the British Foreign Secretary... The most persecuted group under most attack around the world right now, Christians. Here's a line from the report that was written. In some regions, the level and nature of persecution is arguably coming close to meeting the international definition of genocide, according to that adopted by the United Nations. That's from the report from the British government. The BBC has picked up on this and written about it. A few other British papers have as well. A little smattering here in North America, but for some reason... This story has been heavily underplayed. I don't, you probably have not even heard about this. You may have heard of what happened in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday with the attacks, but that was, oh, that, you know, that was, that was unusual. Well, apparently it's not unusual. Apparently it's very common right now. We're just not hearing much about it. I want to bring in Dr. David Haskell, who's an associate professor of religion and culture at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, Dr. Haskell, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. So have I simply just missed the coverage on this, or has it been largely absent? No, uh, you are right to say that it's been largely absent. And, and you know, in media, we have these news values that make a story really worthwhile. And um, you were talking about the report that uh, the Foreign Secretary of the UK put out. And, and, I mean, this is how dramatic it is. This is 80% of persecution for faith happens to Christians. This is a really, this is a significant report. And from my own gleanings in uh, over the internet and watching the news, I haven't seen anything in the national news in Canada related to this. You mentioned that it is getting some traction in the UK, but here in Canada, almost nothing. And, 
you know, it's got me thinking about why that might be the case, and maybe we'll we'll dig into that a bit. Well, let's go there. Why is that the case? So I, I'm looking at it, and I say I see that we've got actually, you know, three problems. The first problem is that Christians are are being killed at a level that is almost nearing the definition of genocide. So that's a huge problem. But then we see that potentially the media is complicit in this, in that it is definitely underreporting. It's under underreporting the situation. So that's another problem that I want to talk about. And then we want to say, why are they not talking about who's doing the persecution? That's another thing. So let's look at the first one first. Why is it underreported? And my, my best guess would be, and this is looking at surveys of journalists themselves and also of uh, politicians on the left. People, so journalists at the national level tend to be more left-leaning, and, and politicians also have the same kind of mindset when they're left-leaning. There's this sense that Christianity is part and parcel of what we'd call the Western tradition or Western institutions. And there's been a real movement since the 1960s to demonize these Western institutions and Western traditions. And when you look at the force behind the traditions and the institutions, you'll often find Christianity. The law system in Canada and, and the West in general has foundations within Christianity. Um, but, but not everything is seen as uh, the beautiful stuff, like our, our freedoms. They also look at the negative things, colonialism. And, um, well, in Canada, we would maybe even cite the, uh, the residential school system, for example. But what happens in our educational system is that we have this asymmetrical pedagogy. And it's a term that's getting used more often, but what it is, it's a highlighting of the negative and a diminishing of the positive. So maybe if you were going to school in the 1950s, you would have heard about the good things that Canada did, the, the movement toward progress, and you would have also heard about some of the negative things that happened along the way. Uh, human beings do negative things, and, and these things are going to happen, and they need to be talked about. But now with this asymmetrical pedagogy, what you're getting is an emphasis on the negative. So someone attending school from the 60s, and it's, it's really just gotten worse as we've moved through the decades, they've now come to believe that Canada, the West, the institutions of the West, including Christianity, are very negative and suspect. So when you have that mindset, you're really going to be quite cautious about giving support to those institutions, including Christianity. So what Let I me jump here, in for just one second, because yeah. you mentioned this, and it's interesting, because Jeremy Hunt, who's the Secretary of State for Britain, who's the guy who's behind this report that, the, that Britain put out there, uh, something he said, there's a quote of his, I think we've shied away from talking about Christian persecution because we are a Christian country, and we have a colonial past, so sometimes there's a nervousness there. So, in other words, if I'm interpreting what he's saying correctly, um, it, we don't really, or Christians don't really fit the narrative of victims, therefore we don't really like to talk about them in that sense. And, and this is exactly right, but let's dig a little bit deeper with that. Right now, if you, if you attend any university, and your listeners may be familiar with this, almost everything in your arts programs and your humanities programs is presented as a conflict between the oppressed and the oppressor. And it's a very, very simplistic lens. But when, when that lens is used, Christianity always falls on the side of the oppressor. And you don't want to support the oppressor. And in, in, uh, in good fashion or good uh, political correctness, 
you know, you're shy about saying anything good about Christianity. Now, now look how warped this is. Here we have people in developing countries, Christians in developing countries, who are being killed, and people are afraid to speak out in support of them because there's this larger narrative that somehow Christianity is the oppressor, which, by the way, in point of fact, in terms of historical evidence and social scientific evidence, is completely false. If you look at the larger record, Christianity has been the single greatest force for good. This desperate need among those on the left, whether they're journalists or politicians, to not be seen in the supporting Christian camp, like they're trying to avoid it. So an example that came to my mind was the recent tweets that uh, Hillary Clinton and Obama, Barack Obama, sent out after the Sri Lanka bombing. So in Sri Lanka, there were bombings about 300 Christians died. They were at Easter Sunday, church services. So the, the churches were bombed and they died. And we had Clinton and Obama sending out these tweets. But in the tweets, they were really bizarre, because both of, both of them avoided using the word Christian to say who had been killed. And they actually invented a new word. Instead of calling the dead people Christians, they called them Easter worshipers. And equally odd was they didn't say churches had been bombed. And it's, it's, to my mind, this is just emblematic of this larger issue of we, we don't want to make it seem like Christians are being persecuted. Now, there's a double standard here, because, uh, I mean, months before, sorry, weeks before when there was the Christchurch bombing, or I'm sorry, the shooting in Christchurch at a Muslim mosque, both Obama and Hillary Clinton were very, very clear that they were standing firm with the Muslim community. Uh, Obama himself said that it was terrible that this would happen in a mosque. So there's this double standard where you can come out very forcefully in support of certain religious communities, but not for Christianity. Is it conscious or unconscious bias? I think it's conscious. And I think it's because they've imbibed so long at this really uh, false negative narrative that Christianity is part of the oppressors. Um, so it's, it's hard for them to overcome that. But the, the challenge here, one of the things that I'm digging deeper into this report that the British government put out here, uh, and again, quoting Jeremy Hunt, who's the secretary of state for Britain, he says, what we've forgotten in this atmosphere of political correctness is actually the Christians that are being persecuted are some of the poorest people on the planet. In the Middle East, the population of Christians used to be about 20%. Now it's 5%. So when you're talking about, uh, who are the victimizers or the colonialists or whatever you want to call it, that's not this. No, it's not. And they're definitely overlooking this, but there really isn't a sense of coherence within what we're seeing now in this leftist ideology. There's not a coherence. It's just bad is over here and, and good is over here, and it's very Manichaean. And you mentioned the political correctness. And what we see in this, it goes to my second question, why are they not talking about who the persecutors are? And there's one, one of the uh, media outlets to actually report on, on this uh, persecution, persecution of Christians was the BBC. But nowhere in the report does it say who's persecuting the Christians. Now, if you read the actual report that came out from the foreign secretary, it tells you that North Korea, China, but overwhelmingly it is Muslim violence against Christians in Muslim-majority countries. And people don't want to admit that there is a real problem in Muslim theology or in Islamic theology in some of these countries that does advocate at a literal level to harm Christians and other people who are not of the Muslim faith. 
And the problem with avoiding saying this is that we'll never see correction because criticism brings correction. We've seen it in Christianity. Christianity often goes off the rails. If you look at the historical record, and the thing that brings it back is somebody says, that's too far, that's wrong, and it's persistent criticism that brings correction. But our avoidance of saying, look it, there's real problems within the theology of, of certain Muslim nations and Muslim fundamentalists that needs to change, and it's right in the Quran. You've got to deal with that. Would this still be happening, though, whether it's in Muslim nations or China? Because we've heard, I mean, China has been shutting down and knocking down and blowing up churches, and North Korea certainly we know about. Would this all still be happening at the rate it is, according to this report, if it was being talked about and had a spotlight being shone on it? Well, here's what would happen. It would, it would definitely awake the masses here in the West if we talked about it more. If we gave it, if, if we gave it the, the attention it, it, it deserves, then maybe there would be a greater pressure from the masses uh, at large. That, that's the only way that things are going to change. Do I think that the Chinese government is really going to give a wit that we, we're covering it more in the media? Probably not, and certainly not North Korea. But I think that overall, one of the things that we have that, that get people to change is stigmatizing bad behavior and criticizing bad behavior. And it's got to start there. It's certainly not going to bring change if we say nothing. It is, uh, it is a really interesting discussion. People can go online. Again, the BBC has done good work on this. Uh, the report is online as well if they want to read it from the British government. Uh, Dr. David Haskell from Wilfrid Laurie University. Appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, it's a troubling one. It really is a very difficult story because we don't hear much about it. And therefore, when you don't hear much about it, you say, well, maybe it's exaggerated then. And yet you do have foreign governments, respected governments who are now coming out saying, no, no, actually, this is a big problem that is being underplayed that isn't being really paid attention to, but it's a big problem. And again, we're not just talking about the colonialists. We're talking about from this report, some of the very, very poorest people on the planet People who, by every definition of the word, truly are victims. And yet we're not hearing about it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in our good friend, your good friend, everybody's good friend, Rick Zamperin from 900 CHML, a guy who knows everything about football and then some. Sir, how are you tonight? I'm fantastic. How are you? I am very well. Uh, particularly since we heard this week that the CFL and the CFL Players Association have embraced in a warm bosom-to-bosom hug, they are now best friends again. All labor disputes and fights are gone. We are now heading into a unicorns and rainbows period of time for this league, correct? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one way of putting it. (laughs) I I think, you know, whenever, because, you know, during the offseason, we were all kind of warned, or at least hints were dropped, that this could be a very contentious, uh, long, drawn-out kind of negotiation process. And, you know, part of that is true. I think it was uh, at times contentious with, uh, you know, the ownership group and, and the players trying to get what they wanted, as is, you know, with any negotiations in, in any sport, in any business, really. Um, but I think now that there's labor peace, I think everybody's in the state of mind of, <clears throat> yeah, things are good. 
for the time being, though. Are you surprised that they came to a deal before it really got down to the 11th hour or before we started getting into training camp and there was pressure applied? I really thought it was going to go until this weekend. Uh, You know, training camps start Saturday slash Sunday with players reporting and the like. But the reason I think they did, uh, well, at least a couple of reasons. The reason I think, the ultimate reason I think they did it on Wednesday morning is that rookie camps opened Wednesday morning in a bunch of CFL cities. And with that, it's not just rookies, it's quarterbacks as well. So you have the marquee uh, players with certain franchises that would have reported to to training camps. The second part about it is because the labor laws are different between, say, Ontario and B.C. and Alberta, you would have ultimately had, if this came down to the weekend, You'd have ultimately had players in BC and Edmonton and Calgary um, um, not going to training camps, whereas those in Ontario, so we're talking the Tiger Cats, the Argonauts, and the Red Blacks, would have had to wait four more days because our labor laws are different here to start any work stoppage. So the Players Association A is going to have to figure out that, and I think the the easy move to do is to say, hey, by by a certain date, well before training camps begin and well before the CBA expires, we're going to take some presumptive or or preemptive action to say, all right, now we are not officially on strike, but we are officially in, uh, you know, work stoppage mode, however the language is, just to send a message to the owners to say, hey, we're serious about this. Uh, You know, let's put pen to paper and get it done. And ultimately they did. Here's the thing about the CFL, whenever they come up to labor negotiations and contract and CBA stuff, I'm always surprised when this happens, that the players are able to get anything out of the owners because I'm not entirely sure what is the leverage that the players have in a league like this where you can cut guys before Labor Day and not have to pay them, where it's a transient league in a lot of cases where guys are coming and going. There's a few players that have a lot of sway in this league, but I don't know how the players ever get anything. Oh, are there you there? are. I'm still there. Sure. What? Uh, no, no, no problem. I, I thought you were just ignoring the question. Um, no, it was a great question. <laughs> I, was saying, I was saying there's a lot of truth to that because, you know, from a player's perspective, if you're in the Canadian Football League, there's not much else or not anywhere else you can go unless, you know, you want to move your family to Mexico and try out that league uh, or go to Europe. And, and, and we can talk about, you know, Randy Ambrosi's CFL 2.0, which includes those two destinations. But really, other than the CFL, and this is true for a host of American players too, there isn't anywhere else to go to play and make money. So from that standpoint, the owners have a huge amount of leverage. However, from an ownership standpoint, if you lock out the players, if you drag out uh, a strike or, or work stoppage because you want to get what you want to get, you potentially piss off a lot of fans and to a degree where they're never going to come back. So a long-term view from an ownership standpoint is we can't afford to lose any more fans. So if this work stoppage or strike carries on for a long time, we are going to lose those fans. They're going to go to something else. Just like we saw with the baseball strike after 1994, they went somewhere else for a while. And I agree with that. I agree with that position. It's a very wise position, but for one thing, and that is, Saskatchewan, the fans are always going to come back. I mean, you could uh, you could literally go up and have players spit in the face of every fan and slap them across the face and go, oh, okay, when's football start? Um, you could probably do almost the same in Winnipeg, in a few other places perhaps as well, in Calgary, maybe in Edmonton, but in Toronto and Montreal, we don't know about Ottawa and BC. Uh, would it really make that much of a difference? 
Because I, I don't know that you're going down a whole lot from some of those places anyway. Well, you might in places like Montreal, especially, and maybe even in BC, and, and certainly in Toronto. I mean, we're, we're already seeing that kind of bottom out. I, I just don't think from a league standpoint, the ownership group as a group wants to go down that road because this is such a gate-driven league. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know, the Saskatchewans, the Edmontons, uh, the Calgarys, the Winnipegs, those, those franchises are going to be fine. But I don't think the other ones can afford to lose many more fans. Uh, and let's not forget, you know, the TV deal that this league has, if those fans go somewhere else, A, they're not going to the games. B, they're probably not tuning in to watch the mm. game any longer because they moved somewhere else. So there's a lot of dominoes that, you know, both sides have to uh, not want to topple to, to get into serious trouble. There are a number of things that have been reported about what is in this new collective bargaining agreement. I just want to touch on a couple of them or maybe three of them very quickly. Uh, the salary cap is going up like 1% a year. It's not going up by much. It's $50,000 a year. It's, yeah. it's, it's really peanuts because it's less than the minimum wage for a single player. But one of the interesting things is the minimum wage is going from 53000 this year up to 65000 next year. Not a lot in pro sports terms, but you've got some teams that signed some big-ticket quarterbacks, big-ticket free agents, and now next year you're going to have to suddenly pay, apparently, a whole bunch of guys, relatively speaking, percentage-wise, a whole bunch more money. How do they fit this under the cap now? Yeah, this, this is going to be interesting because now you have all these, uh, let's call them minimum wage in the CFL players who are right now making 53000 and come next year, they're all going to be bumped up to that $65,000 range. How teams are going to fit this into the cap is those marquee guys, those Bo Levi Mitchells, those Mike Riley's, those Trevor Harris guys, are still going to get their, uh, you know, uh, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollar contracts. But there's going to be a lot of middle of the road guys uh, who maybe right now are making eighty, ninety, maybe even a hundred thousand dollars. They're going to be pushed down to that sixty-five thousand dollar range. There's going to be a lot of those guys who are pushed down because everybody else is getting a bump up of you know twelve, thirteen thousand dollars. So there's going to be a lot of guys either losing a lot of money and, and having to go back to that minimum salary, or they're just going to be cut and they're going to bring in some new Americans who are going to obviously start at that salary figure. Yeah, I don't see. I I would interpret this as being something the players would have asked for, but I'm not sure I understand what's in it for the players because if you're not going to raise the salary cap, if you were going to raise the salary cap by 10% and everybody then gets a bump, terrific. But if you're now keeping the salary cap essentially where it is, and a bunch of your veteran players are either now going to have to take a pay cut or they're going to be run right out of the league because we can't afford to keep them. I'm, uh, I don't quite understand it. Yeah, I think this is a case of more players are going to be making the minimum than ever before. I think that's basically what it boils down to because, you know, you look at every roster, it's, you know, 53, 55, 60 guys, and now you're going to have to pay at least half of those guys, if not a whole lot more, Ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars more to get to that minimum salary next year. There's just going to be more people in that minimum salary pie to, to make the camp work. And is that something that I mean, you've been around these players a long time. Is that something that makes them want to stick around in the CFL? And is is that a, a motivation to be involved in this league to say, oh, you know, I get an extra twelve grand now? Yeah, I, you know, every every guy is different. I mean, if they want to play the game and get paid to play a game. You know, at, at the end of the day, it's still a game. You know, they'll, they'll make that sacrifice if they want to continue to play. But 
if you were, you know, uh, American player, uh, you know, 394 that's come up here uh, over the last couple of years, and and you're new to the league, you're going to say, okay, I could either get paid $65,000 to play or not play at all and, and start my career in whatever I want to do. So uh, it, it'll be situational. There, there's going to be CFL veterans in this league right now who have been in the league for three, four, five, six, seven years who are going to have to come to the realization that if I want to keep playing, I'll have to take a little bit of a haircut. Here. Yeah, I, I, I see a lot more guys with a lot shorter careers because why do yeah. I want to stick around now if I'm going to be making this amount of money? The other thing, we just have a minute or so left. The other thing that I really found interesting, and I applaud this, and I don't know who asked for this, but I applaud this, is that now medical coverage for up to three years for injured players, which as I understand this, and I stand to be corrected, in the past, if you had a guy who injured himself, you could cut him from the team. Now, let's say a guy blows out his knee, he's got to have some sort of coverage even if he's not on your team right now. I th- if that's the difference, I think that's a fantastic thing. Yeah, the difference is from the last CBA to this one is they were previously covered for one year. Now it's going to be three years. So if you suffer let's say a torn ACL and it takes a little more than a year to get you know back into the game, uh, you're going to be covered for up to three years. If you suffer a concussion, any kind of debilitating injury on the field, you're now going to be taken care of, quote unquote, for three years instead of one. So I think that, that's a huge plus for the players. I, I, well, I think it's a plus for the players. And quite honestly, I, I think the fans should be happy about this because even though fans love it when guys crush other players and there's big hits and everything else, I, I I think when you really contemplate the human involvement in this, we don't really want to have players be beaten down shells of themselves and then cut loose after a year and off to deal with it themselves. I, I think we do want to have humane treatment of these guys. Yeah, we, you know what? We want to see the best players play the most physical, hard-hitting, uh, you know, action-packed game. We want to see those big hits, but we don't want to see anybody get hurt. And I know there's a fine line there, and, and sometimes you can't have both of those, uh, you know, in the equation. But, uh, you know, good on the CFL for yep. whether yep. they have to give an inch or a foot. At least they, they made some strides there. Rick Zamperin, appreciate it as always. Thanks for doing this. You got it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. 911.